Good morning. Uh, today we begin to dive into the Psalms. Uh, our, one of our strategic initiatives, as you know, is that of prayer. Uh, we've got several things that we've started and others to come down the pike concerning prayer. And this is one of them. Uh, by studying the Psalms to learn more and more about the different ways that we can pray and praise God. This is on page 480, Psalm 65. 480 in the Bible that's in the pew. Psalm 65, uh, if you don't have a pew Bible and you brought a Bible, just kind of go to the middle and you'll get pretty close. Psalm 65. Now, as, as, we're, as we read it, you'll, you'll see that the psalm divides into two sections, and that's in your outline. Uh, verses 1 through 4 talk about adoring God as the God of redemption. Adoring the God of redemption, and then adoring the God of creation. Verse 5 is a kind of corner where it turns, it pivots. It looks back to speak of his salvation, but it pushes us forward into considering the power and goodness of God in creation. Psalm 65, verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We should be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. Your, you, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. That's the reading of God's word. Now, the ancient Hebrew title to the whole book of Psalms, all 150, is Book of Praises, or sometimes just Praises. Now, to praise God is to acknowledge who he is and what he's done, to enter into fresh astonishment at God himself. And this may not seem a fully accurate title, praises, because we know that there are lamentations. In fact, if you count them, there are more lamentations, that is, cries out to God in suffering, than there are praises. So why just the title praises? 
I'd like to suggest in answering this that we're going to learn something about Christ, ourselves, and even the history of the world as we look at the overall structure of Psalms. We will get to Psalm 65, and we will treat it briefly, I promise. Because you're thinking, if this is the introduction and we got a whole sermon afterwards, we're in trouble today. Um, but I, th- I think we're going to be all right. Now, here's the interesting thing. How the holes of the Psalms move. After the first and second Psalm, which are more or less introductory, Psalms 3 through 7, the next five, are all Psalms of Lamentation. And there are other songs of lamentation that lead up to perhaps one of the greatest lamentations in Psalm 22, from which Christ himself quoted in, on, on the cross. Now, there, there's the beginning. Uh, what about the ending? The last five of the Psalms are all praises, okay? And in fact, the, the phrase, praise the Lord, there, now the word praise occurs, but the word praise the Lord, that phrase, doesn't occur in the first 100 Psalms. First time you see it is Psalm 102, okay? Then after that, once it's launched, uh, it ends, uh, it, it begins three Psalms. That phrase ends four Psalms. It's the beginning and end of three more Psalms until you get to the last five and it starts and finishes every Psalm. Praise the Lord. We're really picking up steam because then in Psalm 148, 13 times the word praise occurs in 14 verses. But then it even gets more concentrated and packed in the very last hymn of last Psalm, 13 words, uh, praise is said 13 times there, packed into six verses. Every phrase, praise, 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 praise. That's what you hear echoing as you leave the Psalms. Praise, uh, like, like Paul saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's the Old Testament version of it. So uh, the book of Psalms is clearly arranged from lamentation to praise, but then also individual lamentations have that same movement. Take Psalm 22 that begins, uh, which Christ quoted, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes through a long laying out of the suffering of the psalmist until it gets to verse 22. And he says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing praise. Wow. Just out of the blue, he bursts into praise uh, after this lamentation. And it's, this, this statement is quoted in Hebrews as, as applied to Jesus himself. That Jesus, out of his suffering, confesses the name of God to his brothers. And you'll see if you go back to uh, Psalms 3 through 7, those lamentations, every one of them ends with praise and confidence in God. So whether you're talking about the whole of Psalms or an individual Psalm, the movement is from lamentation to praise. So rightly, we could say this collection can be titled praises. because That's the emphasis. That's the flavor of it. Now, let's make some connections. 
Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection that the Psalms, among other places, tell you about me. They announce me. And so even the shape of the Psalms tells us, even forecasts something of Jesus, anticipates uh, Jesus and his life. And certainly his life was marked by the most terrible lamentation. As he was under the very wrath of God on the cross, as Peter said, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore our punishment on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it ushered into, three days later, the resurrection where he is raised to the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things, and where saints and angels crowd around his throne to praise his name. What a change from lamentation to praise. And yet, as you notice, when he speaks of praise, it's not just him praising, but he announces it to his brothers and sisters. He wants to be a part of the congregation. So Jesus' death for us is meant then to take us from death into praises. And so this is what Jesus does for us, turning our lamentation into praise, bringing us into the favor and grace of God forever. When we were outcast and alienated from God, he turned our lamentation into joy, into praise. So the Psalms really give us a pattern for Christ and they give us also a pattern for our own lives. We continue with songs of lamentation in this world. We always will before the final day when we're resurrected along with Christ. Even in Romans 8, one of the greatest descriptions of the new creation in all of the Bible. Even there, in that astonishing anticipation, Paul says, we and all creation groans. We groan now. As we anticipate the praise to come. So we don't hide from the uh, awful suffering and tragedies and devastating loss and death itself that we face in this life. There are psalms of lamentation and they're meant for us to sing. And they're to encourage us to express fully our hearts to God. That may be part of the turn of the Lamentations into joy is the unburdening of our hearts to God, openly, freely pouring out our pain to Him. They write poetry about their pain, <laughs> right? They write poetry, extensive poetry, to describe what they're going through. And so our eyes are wide open to our suffering and to one another's suffering. We enumerate our suffering. We tally it before God. Christianity does not consist of shallow people with pasted on smiles, chirping, hollow and baseless and empty. Praise the Lord to everything that moves. That is not Christianity. This dishonesty with the reality that we face. 
But by His grace, we face our pain. We look to God in the midst of it. And in the desert of our lamentation, we pick our way by faith to the streams of God's grace to the streams of His sovereignty in our lives, to the stream of His goodness shown to us in Jesus Christ. Praise, then, is our... It's my declaration to the darkness that you will not have me. It is our announcement to despair that I will not be owned by you. It is our opening our, it's our opening our hearts to hope, for hope to govern our lives, for hope to have a wide place in our lives. Praise is the means by which we maintain hope. It's our battle cry against suffering and sin and death. Praise is critical for us. So, lamentation moves to praise in the Psalms as a whole, in individual Psalms, in our lives. Praise is your strength. As Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so, Christ's resurrection has broken into this suffering world. His resurrection life has broken in and and it manifests itself in his people who rightly sing songs of lamentation, but who alone in the world weave a melody of true and everlasting praise for all peoples to hear. That's when praise is effective, is in the midst of suffering. We're able to lay hold of the goodness of God. That's why, brothers and sisters, I've, I've said this before, but when Paul tells young men to adorn the doctrine of God, I, I used to read that and say, that's a joke. Yeah, I'm going to adorn the doctrine of God because my life can only uh, darken the doctrine of God. I can never measure up to the doctrine of God. But how do you adorn the doctrine of God? You show how the gospel grace and goodness of Jesus sustains you in the midst of suffering and tragedy. No angel, no angel can do that. You're the ones. You're the ones that show forth that praise to the world. That praise is the only hope of the world. So, this pattern is the pattern of Christ. It's the pattern of our lives. It's really the pattern of all of history. Because the pivot of history is the resurrection of Christ. Now, lamentation is laced with praise because of Christ. Hope can be had by all peoples in the world because of Christ. Because of his resurrection, new creation is on its way. The renewal of us and all things. And brothers and sisters, no matter what our lamentation, it's not the lamentation of being under the wrath of God. Only Christ sang that song of lamentation, bearing the very wrath of God. You will never bear the wrath of God if you're in Jesus. There is no condemnation for you. We will never have that. We may have every kind of suffering in this world, but we will never suffer the wrath of God. 
So realize as we open this, these psalms that we're looking at a pattern for Christ. We're looking at a pattern for our lives. We're looking at the pattern of the world. Lamentation ending in praise forever. Completely caught up into praise. And so, obviously, no matter what we are going through, eventually and ultimately, our lives must be defined by praise. Our, 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 our lives must be colored by praise. They must have the fragrance of praise. That's our life. That's our hope. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then for a few minutes, let's talk about Psalm 65. If you uh, have it, if you've uh, closed your Bible, you can open it back up to page 480 to look at this. Um, when he starts here, we're going to first talk about his redemption, praising or adoring God. And the word praise is found at least one time here. It's a different word, but another word for praise. Praise is due to you. This could be translated uh, and you see this in the bottom note of the ESV, praise waits for you. And I would take this to mean, as, as, as some do, that Lord, praise is just sitting on the ready for you to make a move. Praise is just ready to, to just spend itself lavishly and gladly when you act, when, when you appear when you do anything, Lord, it, it shows uh, us a life that stands on the ready to praise God. That is eager to praise him. That is just right on the edge of praise at all times. Praise waits for you. Praise is expectant in this regard. Wow. Happy the person who's sitting on the re- ready to praise and to, to show gratitude whose life is wide open for praise, ready to soar at any moment in that sense, to catch the wind and updrafts of praise. And those who praise perform their vows. That is, those who praise also give themselves up to God, as it says in Romans 12 of making ourselves a living sacrifice. And so praise, part of praise is I honor you, I give myself to you to be owned by you and governed by you. And isn't it encouraging that he is the prayer hearing God? He is therefore the prayer answering God. You who hear prayer, bottom line, categorical. That's who he is. Don't think he's ever anything different. He hears prayer all throughout Scripture, urging us to prayer, illustrating the effectiveness of prayer, giving us parables for prayer. He is the prayer answering God. And all the peoples of the earth, if they're going to have any answer to any prayer, if they're going to have any help from any source, it's only going to be from God. All flesh must come to you. Everybody in the world, they have nothing but you and apart from you there is nothing and then he speaks as he introduces this glorious god who uh, deserves praise who who deserves prayer because he answers it he then says my guilt overwhelmed me he said iniquities prevail against me 
I'm locked in condemnation. There's no hope. I'm undone. I'm sunk beneath them. They're too much for me to deal with. They're way beyond me. Yet no matter how severe, no matter how devastating, this is what you do. Just like you're the God who answers prayer, you forgive sin. Another categorical statement. He forgives sin. Any sin, all sin, even overwhelming sin that slays us by its sheer ugliness and corruption. And we're horrified that we could have said or done or thought what we did. did. He forgives sin. Jesus Christ died for all of our sins. He is the forgiving God. That's the whole reason he sent his son to forgive our sins. And of course, it's not just, and you see the result of the forgiveness in verse 4. You choose, you bring us near to be your intimates. You enable us to live in your presence. It shows how complete forgiveness is when you're invited into the house and you're given the run of the place and you're a child. And you're eating, you're having dinner with the the king because you have been forgiven of your sins. And in the first place, at first it may seem to put you off, but it's really a glorious thing that it speaks of the priest himself whom God chooses to bring near into the temple. But the point is that if the priest comes, then he brings all the people and represents the people. And in Christ, we are brought into the presence of God through Christ. And when it speaks of being satisfied with the goodness of your house, uh, in the peace offerings, among which Passover was one, you actually made the offering and then you ate dinner in the presence of God. That's why it's called a peace offering. There's peace. There's shalom between you and God. There's no condemnation. You're fully accepted in the presence of God. And the Passover is a particular kind, of course, that speaks of God passing over through the lamb that was sacrificed. And so what a picture for our priest who sacrifices himself and we feast on him in the Lord's Supper. And this supper announces to us that all the treasures of God are open to us. Every blessing in the heavenlies, Paul says, is yours in Christ Jesus The feast has already begun. We have a token of the final feast every week in the Lord's Supper. That's that's the New Testament, New Covenant version of we'll be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. The goodness of being with God's people and feeding on Christ together in the word and sacrament and being enriched so that we can spread that blessing outside our walls. We have Christ. We are made one with him. We stand with him and in him. He takes us to himself. He owns us. He stands for us. He stands with us. With him, we inherit the earth. With him, all things are ours. With him, all privilege and standing and favor we have with God. So these words in verse 4 just explode into unimaginable beauty in the person of Jesus Christ. For we have all things in him. 
And this is how he makes all things right. He says, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. You put things right, we would say, in Christ Jesus. There he perhaps is talking about Exodus, your awesome deeds like the Exodus and other deliverances. And for us, the deliverance is Christ himself who sets us free from our oppressive slavery to sin. He is our God of salvation. And he's the only hope, the only trust of all the earth, verse 5. The only confidence that anyone can have is in this one, we say, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is all underscored by the glory of his power and goodness that is shown in creation. It's wonderful how, as he talks about our, our being forgiven, brought near, transformed as God's acting on our behalf. And then he just jumps into creation to say, and look how mighty this savior is that you have. Look how complete his power is. Look how he can overcome all things that would oppose you. Look how all enemies are subjected to him because he's the Lord of the earth. And look at the richness of his goodness as he causes the earth to bear fruit. This is your God. This is the God of salvation. So as you adore him in redemption, jump ship often to praise him as the God of creation as well. Uh, I find myself back and forth, back and forth. And for me, uh, I'm like Psalm 19 that begins with creation and then ends with the word. I get my motor running and praise through creation again and again, you know, uh, that's, that's my avenue. And then to break in from creation into redemption, yours may be the other way, but both as we think about our lives being marked by praise and all of history to point to praise and, and the, the whole of the Psalms going for lamentation to praise here, are the two primary ways, right? To praise him for his redemption, to praise him for creation. And so he speaks of the massive, unshakable mountains in verse 6. Only because God is the architect, God is the contractor, God is the builder who set every mountain and hill in the world in its place, one by one. However he did it, he's the one who did it. This is the God of your salvation. And then he goes from the secure mountains to the seas that are wild and threatening. They're actually a symbol for all danger and curse in this world. That's why in Revelation 22, the seas are going to be removed. I'm counting on that we'll still have oceans and water. Okay, that's my private belief. But. The symbol that they point to of the curse and danger is gone. And that's why it says the seas are removed. But in this statement, he then is the sea tamer. He bridles the seas. He brings the seas to heal. And it's the same with the people. The seas represent the tumult of people. The seas represent this instability and peril that marks all peoples of the earth. And though all of them may rise against us, 
and even imprison us or execute us, ultimately they can do nothing, nothing to stop the blessing of God that we have entered and we will inherit. He shushes, I love that word, he shushes the seas, he shushes the peoples because no one will harm his beloved ultimately. His people throughout the world are in awe of what he's done, especially in Christ, that now in Christ, he reigns, and Christ reigns over all things and is bringing them to a final unity in himself, verse 8. And then I love the ending of uh, verse 8, the, the, the shout for joy of the colors and momentous change from darkness to light and light to darkness, the daily awesomeness that we get to see in this world. And their breathtaking beauty itself sings. That's the idea. It's the beauties of the earth are their own praise to God. We get to sing with them. And then he goes to plants. I water my flowers and plants almost daily. I have a little sprayer I love. I love the different ways it will spray and cover everything. God does the same, but he does the whole earth. Waters the whole earth. And he does it 24-7. And the whole schedule was on the books from the beginning. You know, you schedule your watering, you know, so that your uh, thing comes on. Well, God has scheduled all, every shower, every rain, every storm, every snowfall in all places of the earth. And it says he visits. There's the idea of giving it that personal. God is hands-on with his earth. It's not from a distance. He's intimate with every place in the earth, watering it and bringing forth its fruitfulness. If he's that way with this earth, how is he with us? I love how Kidner says in verses 12 and 13, we finally have the fantasy of the hills of the hills and fields putting on their finest clothes and making merry together. Isn't that pretty? They're putting on their finest clothes and making merry. So the creation in all of its fullness, whether vineyards or orange orchards or date palms or fields of wheat and oats or watermelons or pecan trees or squash and cucumbers or flocks of sheep or the wildest stretches of uninhabited world everywhere. There's this banqueting, there's this singing and dancing and celebration of creation. Even the goodness of culture constitutes a praise to God. If all of this were converted to sound, you couldn't hear yourself think. You couldn't even talk to each other. It'd be like at a wild uh, concert and you're trying to hear because of the festive, symphonic concert of praise in all places at all times. So that the whole landscape has turned in, out in its best outfits as if to sing and keep festival. Brothers and sisters, catch the flavor of this psalm. Creation is dressed and it's at festival. Rejoicing in the goodness of God. 
And when he says wagon cart here, it's a neat little phrase, isn't it? Uh, Where your wagon tracks overflow. The picture is a cart piled and packed so full of harvest that it's just dropping. And the overflow is landing in the tracks of the cart. And you can almost picture God driving the cart, whistling, joyous in the abundance of his creation. That's the picture the poet gives us. God's cart overflowing. And this same language, brothers and sisters, in, a, in some continuity in this world and the coming of Jesus, this kind of language is used when it describes the coming of the Lord to judge the earth and to redeem us and to renew all things. Paul tells us of creation's eager anticipation in Romans 8. But in Psalm 96 and 98, the poet says, Let the sea roar. Let the hills and the trees sing. And my favorite, let the rivers clap their hands. Yes, you didn't know it, but rivers have hands. And they're calling on them to clap. You can see with all of this from redemption and creation why in the midst of our lamentation, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our groaning, still without ignoring any of that and openly talking about it to God and one another, still we hear Paul's words, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Get caught up in it. Get caught up. When you see a blue sky, when you see the clouds, when you hear the birds, when you see the live oaks that inundate Fort Worth, you see stunning bridges, you hear on Spotify, Beethoven or U2 or Robert Johnson or Indelible Grace or whomever. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Let us pray. Oh, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for this glorious psalm that calls us into praise. That laces our lamentation with joy and adoration. Oh Lord, give us grace that we will walk forward in the strength of praise. Even in the midst of our suffering. And oh Lord, may this praise burst out into more and more lives of people. Who as Paul says... Grieve with no hope. Oh, Lord, thank you that you've made us to hope in our grief. In Jesus' name, amen.